As we continue our work through the minor prophets, we have gone through Hosea. Today we find ourselves in the book of Joel, if you would open your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find the book of Joel in the pocket in the pew in front of you. And in that uh, pocket you'll find a black Bible. You can find the book of Joel on page 712 of that Bible. As we run through the prophets, we run through the minor prophets, you'll find that many have the same message, even if they have different presentations of that message. There's a statement of the vast sin of the people of God, of the rampant idolatry before God. There is a warning and the promise and asking them to prepare for the coming wrath with a final reminder that God's good promises will all come true. In many respects, as you read through the book of Joel, you can find those same kind of refrains. We have a depiction of catastrophe, of warning, of whether the destruction is going to happen or has already happened. It is written very clearly here. There is a call for the people to repent and to return to the Lord, and there is the promise of God's good grace over them. But in reading the book several times over in the course of the week, there's something that is different and distinct about the book of Joel from even what we read last week in the book of Hosea. Joel just refuses to sound like the rest of the minor prophets. Certainly he does not sound like Hosea, whom we just left. Gone are these sort of deep cuts of sin and the grave response of God's wrath. Joel will talk about destruction, but interestingly, Joel never talks about the cause of that destruction. Joel never assigns to the people the actual blame for the coming locusts. The people are indeed told to come to the Lord's house, but surely that is a sign of lament, not just a sign of guilt. In other words, I think the more we are able to lift the book out of its sort of canonical setting or of its cultural and literary moorings, the more we might find that Joel is different. He's just different than the other minor prophets. Scholars have noted this and suggested that Joel was not written for a particular prophetic purpose, for a particular situation, either present in Joel's time or in the future, but rather that it was a kind of biblical liturgy, a way of approaching certain situations. I thought that that was incredibly helpful for approaching the book of Joel and for understanding what the book of Joel was to mean even for us. To understand what that means, we probably should talk about what liturgy is and and how it's actually very, very helpful. Liturgy is the way and the means by which sort of religious patterns of behavior are formed and habits are formed amongst the people of God. Liturgy is a way to provide constant patterns through weeks and years of repetition building up in us sort of the right ways and helpful ways to approach God. And some churches have an incredibly strong and rigid liturgy so that the same passages are said yearly. The same theological events are celebrated during certain calendar days, and they have even the same prayers every year. Now, we are not quite that rigid. We do have a liturgy that's more well-formed than others, though. One of the best examples of this is the weekly prayer of repentance and then the gospel assurance that we have continually as we gather together. We come together and we plead corporately, having read Scripture for our own repentance. We acknowledge the fact that as the Bible calls us sinners, we are indeed sinful. We plead that God might have mercy for us. It is, for me, the best part of our worship together. 
and is a clear reminder and acknowledgement of our own failings, of our sin, a frank admission corporately of the promises of grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, that we truly do owe a debt that we cannot pay. But there is also then the assurance of God's grace, the assurance of God's help for those who call out to him. Now, as we look at those things, we don't want to go so far as to say that these statements of repentance and of gospel assurance are, are just practice, because they ought not be just practice. We ought to mean when we say in our heads, amen, to what Pastor Richard and Pastor Josh and, and the very few times when I have the opportunity to lead those prayers, when we pray those things, it ought not just be a perfunctory amen as you're thinking about the kind of tacos you're going to have after the service, but rather praying with them, you ought to pray and say amen really to it. So I, I don't want to say it's just practice, but it is meant to be habit-forming for us. It's meant to be habit-forming so that when specific sin does present itself, we already know what it means to repent. We already have an expectation that not only will we repent, but people in here, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, will repent with us. And more than that, that at the end of that repentance, there is forgiveness, there is grace, and there is mercy. As anyone who has known sin in their lives knows, this pattern is helpful because your flesh and Satan will lie to you about the nature of repentance. They will say repentance is too hard. Repentance won't get you what you want. Repentance will embarrass you. Repentance will not lead to forgiveness and restoration. Repentance will just bury you under guilt. And continually the pattern is built up. Repent and be assured of God's good grace. It builds in us this habit of merciful forgiveness, not just from God to us, but also that we would grant such from ourselves to one another. In this way, liturgy is indeed important. It builds up these good and right habits and understanding Joel this way helps to explain not only why Joel looks the way it does, but I think helps explain other problems when we face the book of Joel. For instance, who is Joel? We don't know. There's plenty of Joels in the Old Testament, but it's hard to line up any of those Joels with the Joel that we have here. We know nothing about his father, Pethuel. We don't know when he wrote. One of the reasons why we don't know when he wrote is if you look back to the prophet Hosea and you look to other prophets, they mark when they're writing based upon when the kings were alive. They say, I wrote in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Joel says nothing like this. He says, my dad was Pethuel, which doesn't help us because we don't know who Pethuel is. There's no time stamp given. And even that, there's no markers historically really to tell us what's going on here. Certainly, he's writing about this locust invasion, as we will read here in just a second. But truth be told, locust invasions were not something new to the Middle East. It's hard to pin that down. Locust invasions and major ones at that happened on the regular. So how are we supposed to pin down a date? You go to scholars. Scholars are really helpful about things like this because they pick them apart. And certain scholars look at this and they say, well, there's no kings and there's, there's very little structure here. So it seems as though it's written before the king's ages and that would be in like the 8th century B.C. And other people say, well, there's no kings. It must have been post-exile. That would put it at the 5th century B.C. So we've got this nice 500-year span of time when Joel wrote about something that happened on the regular. 
All of this screams for the fact that Joel doesn't want you to know when he wrote. Because what Joel is trying to communicate is beyond just a particular event, but it's how to handle any kind of event like this. Joel was writing a liturgy. He's a way of relating to catastrophes in the world. When evil strikes you, how do you respond? What are you to do when bad things occur in your life? What is it trying to pattern for us? What kind of habits is he trying to install? Let's go to the book of Joel and find out. We will eventually be reading every word in Joel, but we will do it in chunks. As we start then, let's read of first the ruin that comes from Joel 1, 1 through 12. If you would read the word of our Lord with me. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all of you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because of the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. This is the word of our Lord. This is a depiction of ruin. The first portion of Joel gives an unmitigated depiction of ruin. It is a devastating locust attack. It tells of the coming destruction that locusts have, and many of us don't understand exactly how devastating this kind of thing was. Verse 4 is certainly this sort of common refrain that you would have thought when you saw locusts coming, just when you think it's over, another wave of them comes. We don't know what each of these particular kinds of locusts are, if the cutting locust is different than the swarming locust, but it's just wave after wave, a tsunami, a tidal wave of coming locusts. Just when you think it's over, more come. They never stop, and the destruction seems to be total. This is not a minor catastrophe, it's a major one. The wine is gone. The fig trees are dry. Grain and drink offerings have been taken away from the people. The fields are destroyed. The oil is gone. Fruit will no longer be produced by trees. Frankly, it's hard for us to imagine this kind of destruction. We've faced droughts and we've faced floods before. We, we know what life is like for people in the Midwest who have to face this kind of thing. You've seen the aerial footage when floods have gone through Iowa and the Mississippi has overrun and the Missouri has overrun its banks. 
But although we face these things, we're never actually all that concerned that we are not going to have food. When we see these things happen in the spring, we don't think, oh no, where am I going to find corn in the fall? You're going to find it right where you found it before. It's just going to cost a little bit more. Our food is no longer truly local. We can compensate. We have technology to help us battle such things. To hear a report of something like this and to know that truly, truly the worst that would happen to us is likely that the corn would simply cost more, not that it would be no more. But that is not the case for the people here. When they would hear the buzzing of those wings and they would see the cloud of that locust coming, they would not just see higher prices, they would see death. They would know that one day in the future, they would run out of food. The little that they would have had would have been consumed very quickly by those locusts. And what little was left was consumed by the next wave until they had absolutely nothing less. Their families would starve and they would slowly, all of them, die. If you want to read a good depiction of what this looks like, you actually can turn to a very famous novel, and that is Laura Ingalls Wilder. She wrote of this locust invasion of 1874. Interestingly enough, it was actually the largest recorded locust invasion that ever happened. The, the elements just happened to be perfect for this gargantuan invasion. A Nebraskan meteorologist named Albert Child, it's actually called Child's Invasion, he did some math on it. This swarm of 1874 appeared to be about 110 miles wide, 1,800 miles long, and a quarter and a half mile in depth. The wind was blowing at 10 miles an hour, but the locusts were moving even faster at 15. This swarm of locusts covered 198,000 square miles, Child concluded, which is an area equal to the states of Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island, and Vermont combined. Grasshopper carcasses fouled wells so that people could not drink from them, polluted creeks and rivers, and even stopped trains moving across the country because the tracks were so oiled up with cricket carcasses that they couldn't go uphill anymore. That is a destructive force, unlike anything that we can really comprehend well, unless you live through it. And we've seen tragedy. We, we know something of tragedy. We, we're a month away from celebrating the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I remember where I was when 9-11 happened. I remember coming out of my class up in Houghton, Michigan, because we didn't have technology back then that would have interrupted the class. People didn't have cell phone alerts. And I remember finding the halls empty and people kind of wondering what was going on in New York. And I remember being confused. I remember people talking about there were, there were possibly more attacks coming. But I'll be honest with you, I was never scared. Not because I'm impervious to that, but because I lived in Houghton. And no one was going to attack anyone in Houghton. It just wasn't going to happen. There are people who might have lived closer to that tragedy. People, no doubt, in places like Chicago and people in L.A. who might have feared that those same kind of attacks would happen to them, but that's all it was, was fear. Very few of us know what that is actually like. All the more important to listen to the words of Joel. While such occurrences are probably likely on a smaller scale, 
These are relatively common occurrences to people in the Middle East, and there's no reason to think that God could not in his own time and by his own provision provide the same destruction to us. Just because it hasn't happened to us, you ought not think that it can't ever happen to us. But what's more, all the more we are reminded that tragedies do happen in our lives, that ruin does come to us. Sometimes it comes to entire nations. Sometimes it comes to entire cultures. Sometimes it comes to families. Sometimes to churches. Sometimes to you as an individual. The question that comes to us is, how ought we respond to these things? When ruin comes for us, how ought we respond? And Joel provides us with the answer. Point number two is that we ought to return. When ruin comes return. Listen to what Joel says in Joel 1, 13 through 20. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because the grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. It is not the food, is not the food cut off from before our eyes. Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Joel exists to remind us that when tragedy strikes, We are to run to the Lord. We are to return to the Lord. We are to lament and to grieve. One of the most interesting things about this is what we are supposed to lament and to grieve. For the people of Israel who were facing a famine that would cost them everything. It would cost them their livelihood. It would cost them their their economy. It would cost them up to and including their own lives. What Joel points out is what they ought to lament is that the right and proper worship of God would come to an end. They could not approach God the way God had asked them to. They could not approach God with the right blood sacrifices. They could not approach him with the right grain grain offerings. They couldn't pour out drink offerings before him because all of those things were removed from him. Is that how you would respond? Our country faces inflation. We will continue to face inflation. We don't know where that inflation stops. We don't know how that is going to work. We, we can try to manage it, but we know that it's coming. What would happen if that inflation ran away from us the way it ran away from Germany at the end of World War I, where people would carry buckets and wheelbarrows full of Deutschmarks and burn them not because they were worthless, but because it was cheaper to burn money than to use the money and go buy wood. What would your thought be when that happens to you? Would you lament the fact that you can't carry a cell phone anymore because you can't afford the service? Would you lament the fact that you can't buy gas anymore? Or would you lament the fact 
that mission support is going to dry up. The Word of God can't be preached. That people cannot come in under the true understanding of the gospel because the gospel can't get to them because we can't afford to keep people there anymore. Would it be the keeping of people from worship that truly upset you? This is precisely what Joel says is the problem. We are to return to the Lord. Lament that joy and gladness are cut off. Lament that the beasts of the field suffer and cry out to God for help. The point is precisely that. The devastation is going to happen to you. At some point in time in your life, the devastation of the Lord will happen to you. Major catastrophes are going to hit. Joel says, cry out to the Lord. Small catastrophes will hit. Cry out to the Lord. When your life is threatened, cry out. When you have small problems in life, cry out. It's not that you're, you're not supposed to ask for help from other areas or to seek other means by supporting yourselves. It's not as though the people here would be, well, sort of improper for trying to plant seeds again and trying to get something to grow after the locusts have gone through. It's not that. But none of those can supplant a crying out to the Lord for help. This is a big deal. And I think that Joel is making it into a big deal. But this catastrophe is going to pass. The people will live through it. And there will be another day. And there will be more crops to grow. And there will be other smaller, perhaps minor catastrophes, less devastating locust invasion. Why is this so important? I think that it's so important because Joel is saying that these are just preparations. No matter how real they are, these events in your life are just preparations for greater days of catastrophe. Listen to what Joel 2 has to say as we read the first 17 verses. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountain a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will it again be after them, though the year, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumblings of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their path. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons. They are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon its walls, and they climb up into houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who? And endure it. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, 
with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave behind a blessing for him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Congregate the, consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. But between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? It is interesting, when you begin the second chapter of Joel, the exact same pattern repeats. There's a locust infestation, and they destroyed everything, and so there's a call for the people to gather. And now, Joel says exactly the same thing's going to happen again, but this time there is... There's a deepening of the devastation. There is something more profound about what Joel says in chapter 2. And he relates it not just to the, the day of the Lord, but it is the day of the Lord, a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness. Scholars are split as to what is trying to be shown here. Is this some sort of foreign army? Is it another more major locust invasion? I think that this is nothing less than the army of God. I think that this is the last of the coming days of the Lord. The former locust invasion was real, but it was only a taste, an example of the kind of final judgment that was coming. To those who know how to respond to the small troubles, they will learn rightly how to respond to the greater troubles. The response is the same. When small troubles happen, when little things happen that you will live through, respond rightly to the Lord. Return to him so that when the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, you will know what to do. You return to the Lord. This army doesn't eat. They are like locusts in number. They block out the sun. They blacken the mountains. They don't simply eat, but they burn. They're like horses. They're like an army. They cause anguish in the heart, weakness in the warriors. They leap over any defenses that are there. They are well-trained and they cause great terror. The question that is put before it is who can endure it? That is not the question of Joel 1. The question of Joel 1 is, well, what are we supposed to do about this? As though there is a likelihood that we can live through this. The question of Joel 2 is altogether different. How will anyone survive this? The answer is the same. Return to the Lord. They're to be honest about it. This is not simply going through the motions. They're not simply to, to, to listen to what Joel says in Joel 1 and say, okay, well, we can do that. We can go through all of the steps and we've got this checklist of things that we're supposed to do. We're going to call people together. We're going to say a couple of well-worded prayers to God. He says, no, you can't just rend your garments. I need to know that you know what you have done. I need you to come back to me with ripped hearts. There is no hedging your bets. There's no saying, well, maybe the Lord has done this. Maybe some other God has done this. Maybe if we just say the right thing, we can get out of it. God says, no, you must be truthful before me. They are to remember who the Lord is. 
Joel here has a small nod to the book of Exodus where Moses is hidden in the rock and the Lord repeats the very nature of who he is. He is gracious and merciful. He is slow in anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Every single one of them is to gather, to return to the Lord. No one is to be left out. There is no event too important. If you are ready to marry your wife, he says, stop there and return to the Lord. There is nothing more important than this event. Those who learn well how to return to the Lord over small things will know well how to handle the great day of the Lord by clinging to the mercy of the Lord. And in that, we come to point three, which is the Lord's reply. The Lord will indeed reply to his people as they come near to him. Read with me Joel 2, 18 through 32. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years. The swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent out among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. The praise of the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrous, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no one else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servant in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be called those whom the Lord calls. God's reply is unequivocal. You return to me, and I will make it all go away. I will restore 
everything that has gone wrong, everything that the locusts have taken away, everything that has, has happened, I will reverse it all. The beasts will not fear anymore. Joy and gladness will not be dried up anymore from the people of God, for he will restore all of the land to them. The grain will grow, the figs and the, the vines will, will produce their fruit. All the trees will produce what they ought to produce. Wine will, will become just overly abundant. God will repay all of them for what they have suffered. He will take away their shame. He will provide security from their enemies. And he will supply all of this to his people. It becomes very clear that this is the end of all days. God vanquishes all of the enemies of Israel. He sets Israel up to be secure in a land that is, in the words of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, flowing with milk and honey. It is overflowing with all that is good and right and true. The final judgment will come, and the Lord will spare his people. There will be some who escape all, as we've even heard from the words of Paul, who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who call upon the name of the Lord are those who have been trained to return to the Lord in times of trouble and in times of despair. This is nothing less than the reestablishment of Eden. Back in chapter 2, verse 3, we read that the land was like Eden before these locusts, and they have destroyed it completely. And now, as God restores it, he restores it even greater to what it was. It is Eden, but better. This is nothing less than the end of all time. This passage, especially the end of our passage today, famously in Joel 2, 28, sounds like the fulfillment of prophecy from the book of Numbers. When the elders are called together by Moses, they are to gather and the Spirit of God falls on them. And there we read that two men of those elders had remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, those elders, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. God had always wanted his people to be a nation of priests. He had always wanted his people to carry the fullness of the spirit with them. And here, Joel says, that's precisely what we have. And again, when we read this, Every indication seems to be that this is going to be at the end of days. This is going to be at the final judgment. And then we come to Acts 2. And we find that as the people of Jesus, the risen Christ, are gathered together 50 days after he has been resurrected from the grave, the Spirit of God falls upon them, giving them the ability to speak normally but to be heard in many gathered languages. The people are confused. They hear the people of Jerusalem gathered from all over Greek lands, all over Greek-speaking world. They've been gathered together and they hear them speaking their own dialects and in their own language and they know that they're all Galileans and they say, how can this be? Certain very bright people say, well, they must be drunk. Peter responds to this by saying one of the funniest things I think in Scripture. He says, Standing with the eleven, Peter lifts up his voice and addressed them in Acts 2. Men of Judea 
and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. You wonder if Peter's met many drunks in his life, right? This is apparently not St. Patrick's Day in Chicago. But he says, it's not that they're drunk. They're not drunk. But what they've got is exactly what Joel said would happen. And Peter then has one of the longer quotes in the New Testament of the Old Testament, quoting this passage in Joel. What are we to make of this? This afterwards in Joel. Joel says, and it shall come to pass afterward. It's seen by Peter to indicate that we are now in the last days. And in the context of Joel, it seems to come after all of the blessings have been returned to Israel. After all of the things that they have long waited for have been given to them. And Peter says, that, friends, has happened. That's already occurred. To Peter, all of the blessings have already been returned to the people of Israel in Jesus. This means that Jesus has experienced for the people of Israel already the fullness of the day of the Lord, a dark and gloomy day filled with destruction. When we think of the last days, we think of the great throne judgment and pulling it up and Jesus coming to judge the quick and the dead as the judge of all the earth, the one who was appointed by God to be judge and ruler over all things. And it is already, for the people of God have already experienced that in Jesus himself. In Jesus, we already have Israel returned to its fullness of state and blessing of God. As Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Eden is already ours, waiting for us to come home. God has not just said that he will at some future time restore your fortunes, friends. God has said he already has done that in Jesus Christ. And having returned to heaven, Jesus pours the Spirit upon all of his people, not just on the great of the earth, not just on the mighty, not just on the leaders, not just on the elders. He pours it out upon all, regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of station. God blesses all people with this gift. All who call upon the name of the Lord, all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ will escape the destruction that comes because they have learned to not run from God. When they need to repent, they run to him. They see in the Lord Jesus Christ the fullness of blessing, but also the fullness of forgiveness and grace and mercy, knowing that although their sin is great before him, he is faithful and true to be good to his word when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for my yoke is easy and I will give you rest. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There is a forgiveness that can only be found by returning to the Lord, by running to him. Our flesh and Satan in the world would have you run away. They would say, hide. Do not speak of your sin to one another. Keep it closed, keep it locked up. Do not let people know. When devastation comes, blame the Lord. Raise a fist before him. Ask him why he has done these things, why he has allowed these things. And Joel says, train yourselves. Train yourselves in the small and in the insignificant catastrophes that you face, and in the major ruins of your life, train yourselves to return to the Lord that you may escape the final ruin of all people. For God's reply is grace and faithfulness. Not all will respond 
correctly. Not all have been trained to respond correctly. And therefore, finally, in Joel 3, we have recompense. This is what Joel writes in his third and final chapter. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there, and on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his fierce voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the, all the steam, stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. It's an interesting passage. It says, the people who do not return have a problem with the Lord. They say, are you paying me back for something? They, they are not the kind of people who look at the devastation that has happened and say, well, we need to return to the Lord. We need to draw near to him. Instead, they raise up their hands and they grumble and complain against him, saying, you've done ill to us. You're the one who is supposed to provide us with all things. Why didn't you provide us with this? Let us pay you back. Let us reward you for your faithlessness to us. God says, oh, are, you, are you paying me back for something? I tell you what, I will return that payment to you. 
when destruction comes, people are to run to God. But people do not run to God here. They run from him. They run from him to grumble and complain. They run from him to raise up a lament, not a lament that they are far from the Lord, but a lament that God hasn't given them their due. So God says quite clearly, I will give you your due. If you want me to be without mercy, if you think that I am without mercy, I will indeed be without mercy to you. Tragedy will strike. It is interesting in this passage that the pruning hooks and the plowshares are turned into swords. It's almost as though the people who no longer have ground to plow because God has visited them with devastation, they no longer have a reason to use those plows, say we need a reason to use it, so we're going to turn them into swords and we're going to fight against the Lord. This is precisely the opposite of the thing that Isaiah says in Isaiah 2.4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The people here are so angry, so frustrated. These farmers think that they can become mighty warriors. They are weak, they know nothing of war, but they will turn their plows into swords and they will fight against the Lord. I don't often tell you to gamble, but I would bet against that. These farmers who have nothing to harvest, will indeed themselves become the harvest of God. The sickle will go out. They will be reaped in. The book of Revelation finds a home here. Time and time again, Revelation refers back to this. The winepress of God where blood flows for miles high and thousands of miles wide. Blood flows ever filling the earth because of the evil of the people and the harvest being ripe. The battle itself is pictured in Revelation 16 and in Revelation 19. And John leaves no doubt as to who the victors are and who the coming army is. It is the army of the Lord Jesus Christ who rides forward on a white horse. In there, John has an interesting depiction. As the Spirit of God comes upon all people, John then reverses that image and talks about how the wrath of God will come upon all people. John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud, loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. The rebellion and the destruction is not just for the great. Just as God's gift and promise of the Spirit is not just for the great, it is for all who reject the Lord. What shall we make of all of this, friends? I think simply to learn the liturgy well. You will face trials and difficulties. You will face destruction in your life. You will lose jobs. You will lose spouses. You will lose children. You will be faced with hard decisions. Sometimes you'll just be faced with hard days. Pattern yourself rightly in the Lord, to return to the Lord. When you face things large or small, difficult or easy, return to the Lord. Call people to pray. Call the people of God together so that you might ask for his favor. Do this, not because you feel like you necessarily need it, but because it is the right thing to do. Because you're building up a pattern in yourself. There are plenty of people who look, especially at people who play sports, and they think, oh, these guys, man, when the pressure's on, we know Michael Jordan's just going to make the shot or Tiger Woods is just going to knock a five iron to two feet. 
Do you know why they do that? Because they've done it millions of times before. It doesn't just occur to them. Tiger Woods wasn't like, hey, there's this weird-shaped looking iron in here. Maybe I should try and hit the ball with this thing. He knows exactly what he's doing every time he does it because he's done it since he was two years old. Joel is asking for you to do the same. Return to the Lord so that when the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, you will know how to respond. And by the words of Joel and by our own liturgy that we have built up, we know that the Lord is kind to give us everything we need. He has already himself faced down our greatest threat in our sin and his own wrath and our judgment before God. And he has overcome them for us. And now, having given us his son, what possibly would the Lord hold back from us? What good would he possibly keep from us? So friends, run to Jesus. Run to him in times of devastation. Run to him in times of ruin. For there will come a day when he will restore to those who have lost everything, all things. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gracious manner in which you deal with us. We know that you are sovereign and that you accomplish all that you set your will to. Yet you also speak to us in our experience. You plead with us to walk in ways that are good for us, even good for us in ways that we cannot see. May we be strengthened and trained through tragedy and difficulty to turn to you. As Charles Spurgeon, a man who knew of much suffering, has said, may we rightly learn to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. Let us consider all such trials joy that we may learn to rest in you. Do these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.